0: Welcome to the Pint Glass Football Podcast. Thanks for checking out the Pint Glass Football Podcast, where we like to drink beer, watch football, and talk all things NFL and college football. Be sure to subscribe and follow on Instagram and Twitter, at PGF Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Fowler, and on today's episode, we'll be joined by a special guest, Zach Barnett, college football writer for footballscoop.com and college football talk of NBC Sports. Follow him on Twitter, at Zach underscore Barnett. Excited to talk some college football coast to coast. Joining me is Chad Smith.
1: What is going on, Chad? Hey, Brad, great to be on Pint Glass again. It's another exciting week. We are finally getting ready to talk quite a bit of college football. Zach, thank you for coming on. We appreciate you being a part of the podcast, and I'm going to kick things off. LSU. Basically had one of the greatest seasons, I think, in college football history. I mean, really, if you think back last 20, 30, 40 years, I mean, the number of teams they beat, they lost a lot of people on both sides of the football, Zach. I mean, obviously, Joe burrow has gone, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire to Kansas City, Justin Jefferson to Minnesota, Chaseyon Delpit, just to name a handful of players on both sides of the football. But when you look at LSU, when you lose that many weapons, I know a lot of programs always try to reload. But do you see LSU being elite again this year? Do you see them contending in the SEC West with Auburn, obviously Alabama? Can they come out of the SEC, maybe even at a twelve and one, and get into the college football playoffs this year?
2: Uh, I think that's the the million dollar question for this season because uh, I think you know if, if you were to stack up the rosters of every team in college football, I think total talent they're probably top five, but. You know, obviously the, the the fluctuation of the roster, the maturity of the roster, you know, it, it's very much a question mark, obviously, with a brand-new quarterback. And then, you know, you mentioned the, the draftees that they lost. Well, they're also placing a lot on their coaching staff. They lost a lot of guys from the support staff. They lost both coordinators, obviously. Uh, you know, the, the offense is going to stay the same with Steve Insminger. And then they they added um, Scott Linehan to come in and and help out with the passing game. Uh, Bo Pellini is in for for Dave Aranda as the uh, defensive coordinator. And you know you talk about I don't think you can possibly get a bigger change in terms of personality for those between those two guys. I think if I as I said total roster, there's a whole lot to like there. Uh, Derek Stingley is. Maybe the best pound for pound player in college football as a true sophomore. Uh, I, I think he might be the the best overall player this season, even even ahead of of uh, Lawrence in Fields. Uh, Jamar Chase is the best running back or sorry, best receiver in college football. And then at the running back, they've got two five stars. I mean, they're they're just loaded. But are they ready to step in 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 return to the elite of the elite? I mean, they they get Texas at home, they get Alabama at home. I mean, you add all that up and you can absolutely talk yourself into it. And I might be talking myself into it right now. But I, I think at the end of the day, you, you've you got to pay a price for, for that level of turnover on the roster and in the coaching staff. So, you know, I think they're going to start the year somewhere around number six. And I think they're probably going to end the year somewhere in that nine to 12 range.
0: So I wanted to talk to you, Zach, about the most important position in football. We know it's the quarterback position, and you mentioned Trevor Lawrence, and clearly Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields are the top two quarterbacks in college football going into this season, and they should be one and two in next year's NFL draft. But there are a lot of question marks at the quarterback position around the country. Of the rest of the guys, who are you most excited to watch?
2: You know, I, I, I definitely, I would take Sam Ellinger third overall. I mean, I, I I don't know how his game translates to the NFL when he can't play, you know, that, that quasi fullback position that he kind of plays at Texas quite as well at the NFL level. So you take that that part of his game, you know, how much do you really like him as a pro guy? I don't know, but he's not a pro quarterback right now. He's a college quarterback and he's a heck of a good college quarterback. You know, he certainly had his moments last year. He, he, he was not good against Baylor, not good against TCU in those losses. But, you know, he, he was really, really good against LSU in that game. And I, I think you're going to see a, a, him have a, an absolutely great season this year. Uh, Brock Purdy at Iowa State's another guy that I really like as a college quarterback. Uh, you know, not certainly the, the prototypical uh, pro passer. But then, yeah, and then Kidon Slovis at, at USC. Uh, obviously, he's a sophomore. Sam Howe at North Carolina, a lot of people are really on his train. Uh, another true sophomore, those guys. So uh, if you are looking at it from a draft perspective, I think it's probably going to be a light year after those top two guys. You know, from the college level, I think there is going to be a lot to get excited about, a lot of intrigue. You mentioned I mentioned Miles Brandon at LSU. Uh, there is going to be an, an all-out quarterback battle at Georgia between Jamie Newman, the the Wake transfer, and JT Daniels, the the USC transfer. So uh, I think we're going to have, at the college game, I think it's going to be a great season for quarterback watching.
1: Wow, Zach, that was some great information, and I've certainly written some of those names down, and we'll keep an eye on them because outside of Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, you're right. I think it's going to be a light year, weak year for the draft, but still, that's what makes college football exciting is the quarterback position. And so I want to stay in the SEC ask one more question there, and then kind of tied into to, to Mac Jones. With Tulua leaving, and Tua's obviously gone, he's now with the Miami Dolphins, and you look at Alabama this year with only Mac Jones at quarterback, I mean, he had flashes last year of brilliance, even in that second half of that year when Tua went out, but he had some weapons like Jerry Judy, I mean, rugs. They had the running game in place. When you look at the just weapons that left Alabama this year, very similar to LSU, and you spoke about them, it is more of a reload. But can you see Alabama in that tough SEC, tough SEC West, losing McKinney, Diggs on defense, Davis? I mean, they lost some serious talent, Jedrick Wills, on both sides of the football. I know they've had a lot of five-star kids come in. They've also had a few transfer out, including Toluah. Kind of speak about Alabama, but also speak about Mac Jones at that quarterback position. And if Mac maybe falls for whatever reason, is there someone in the Alabama coffers that Saban may go pull the plug on and say, all right, we're just going to get this guy in right now and get him started?
2: You know, I'm glad you asked, because that's, that's going to be one of the most interesting quarterback battles uh, to watch this season, I think. You know, Mac Jones did a really good job stepping in for Tua last year. Obviously, they lost that, that Auburn game where he threw... I think it was two pick sixes, but uh, I, I know at, at least one of them was an extremely fluky one. I mean, he, you know, they scored forty five points in that game, so he he was obviously not the problem there. The the problem for Alabama was their defense, and it was just kind of a uh, a Murphy's Law type season for Alabama uh, with the injuries that they had, specifically on defense, playing a whole lot of freshmen, uh, which you know you would think serves them well for twenty twenty, and you know you look at it in twenty nineteen was, you know, arguably the worst season of the decade for Alabama. And you look at where they are. They they lost to Auburn by three on the road, and they lost to LSU by five. Really, you know, they they were down. They, they, they got beat. uh Certainly not blown out, but they got beat by LSU. But obviously, LSU went on to win the national title. And, you know, there's question about how good they'll be. My point being, things got as bad as they could probably get for Alabama, and they were still a top 10 team and if they gotten a few breaks they still could have found their way into the playoffs. So there's just so much talent on that roster that it, you know they're always going to lose a lot of guys, they're always going to be young, but they've recruited at such a ridiculous pace. I mean, really the only programs that, that can rival them just for overall talent is Ohio State, Clemson, Georgia, maybe LSU and and then everybody else is 2 3 steps behind them. Mac Jones, I think, you know, obviously has the edge at quarterback. I would not be surprised at all to see him hold on to that job throughout the season. But at the same time, they've got Bryce Young, a freshman from California who uh, is, you know, right up there with Tua. I I can't say to uh, exactly if he's, if he's a little bit ahead or a little bit behind, but I think it's certainly close as the, the most highly touted quarterbacks Nick Saban has signed there. You know, that that's certainly been a recent trend for them of being able to sign the five-star quarterback, and the, the truly the game-breaking arm talent. And I think, you know, he's certainly comparable to Tua in terms of uh, his, the arm talent that he has. He's, he's a little bit of a smaller, smaller guy, but, you know, the, the people, the coaches that have, have seen him and evaluated him just rave about this kid. So I think, excuse me, if Mac Jones is certainly going to be looking over his shoulder at Bryce Young throughout, throughout his entire career, and I think the expectation is at some point Bryce Young is going to win that job.
0: Yeah, it's always interesting to see what goes on at Alabama. Definitely one of the most premier programs in the country, as we all know. And like you talked about, they're always going to have a ton of talent and probably be in the mix again. But I do think the quarterback position is fascinating. But I wanted to shift gears to the Big Ten and talk about Nebraska. Scott Frost enters year three, Zach, as the head coach at Nebraska. The Huskers have signed the best recruiting class in the Big Ten West three years in a row, but have only won nine games in the past two seasons combined. And now their top NFL prospect, wide receiver J.D. Spielman, has transferred to TCU. Many have them as a top 25 team again this year after falling well short of those expectations last season. Can Frost's up-tempo spread offense work in Lincoln? And a two-part question here, with no non-conference games, I think it's going to put a lot more pressure on them to win games in the Big Ten. Will Scott Frost be on the hot seat if Nebraska doesn't contend in that West Division?
2: Uh, as to your first question, yes, I, I absolutely think you can you know, run an up-tempo spread offense in Lincoln because it's being done, or it was done in Minneapolis last year in uh, you know Minnesota was a top 10 team last year with talent comparable to Nebraska. obviously you know PJ Fleck did a lot better job coaching his team than Scott Frost did last year and yeah they they're, the, the problems that Nebraska's had in their wide receiver room is just weird but yeah I, I think you can run run the Scott Frost offense in Nebraska and, and, and run it well. I mean it's being run in in, in state college. Being run, I mean, it's been run for twenty or twenty years ago. They ran it in Evanston, so I I think you, I think you can air the ball out and do it quickly uh, up uh, in the Great Plains. And as as for the hot seat question, there's no question. Scott Frost needs to get to a bowl game. I mean, if you when when he came home and it was like it was like you know Big Red Jesus came home when when they got him from UCF. And if you were to tell them that they'd be where they are today. Uh, heading into 2020 I think they'd all be incredibly disappointed and I think they have the right to be but they're going to give him every chance in the book to win that keep that job and and make it his own and you know really take that program and and run with it because if Scott Frost can't win there, who can? what caliber of coach are you going to be able to get if the if the the favorite son of that program gets run off in year three year four, year five? So I I think they are going to give him the the longest leash that you've ever seen a Power Five a Big Ten program give a coach just because the, it just makes so much sense for him to be the head head Nebraska football coach for the next twenty years the next fifteen years I mean that that's a job that you want this guy to retire from to to run him off after about three years about four years I I just don't really see that happening because I I just truly don't know. You know, there's always going to be the hot Matt coach, the hot, smaller Power 5 coach that you could you could go get. But, you know, really, if if Scott Frost can't win at Nebraska, then who can?
1: I, I agree with you, Zach. I mean, I think they won another Tom Osborne. Nebraska's not had that since he left. I mean, they had some glimmers of hope. But you think all the way back to the Tommy Frazier 1995 and that national championship. I mean, that's been it for Nebraska. But I, I do think you are correct in saying Scott Frost, he, they want him to succeed there. I think Brad's question about is he on the hot seat? That is absolutely a legitimate question. I'm with you, though. I think this just can't be a situation where it's three or four years. That's it. I know Nebraska wants to win like every other major powerhouse program wants to win, but Sometimes you just got to let it play out and give somebody that fifth, sixth year so they can really truly turn the program around because the recruiting world's different now. When you think about back then, when Tom Osborne and, and Barry Switzer and people like that, they dominated that Midwest. Now these kids are going all over the place. They are not even thinking about wanting to stay in those schools. So I, I think you made some great points there about Nebraska and Scott Frost. I want to kind of transition over a little bit. I asked a couple of questions about SEC. want to kind of move to the ACC now, And really, you think about Clemson, and they won the national championship in 2016-2018, had the lead last year against LSU. few few plays, I think they quit using Etienne. The Clyde Edwards-Hilaire play on the sideline didn't get reviewed. I mean, there's a lot of things you can talk into that game. LSU was clearly the most dominant team all year, and they showed it in that game. But when you look at Clemson this year, heading into the season, Brad mentioned earlier, you got Lawrence and Fields, probably going to go 1-2. They are the two premier quarterbacks. I think they also have the premier running back in, at Clemson and Travis Etienne. I think even Lawrence and Etienne, they could be battling each other out for Heisman consideration. Take all that into account. They lost T Higgins. They lost Isaiah Simmons. They lost AJ Terrell. Isaiah Simmons is a generational top player. Brad and I talked about him repeatedly on our mock drafts. And then you take the loss of John Ross. I mean, yes, he's not going to the draft, but he's out for the year. That is two major, major weapons for Trevor Lawrence. So my question is, when you look at Clemson this year, they have been there perennially coming out of that ACC, getting that opportunity, maybe with the easier conference, easier schedule. They've ran the table multiple times, so they're there. Can you see a Clemson team this year losing a game being 12-1 and possibly, still maybe winning the ACC championship, obviously, but can they get into that the CFP without the clean slate? And if not, then how do you see that impact in the program moving forward as well?
2: Yeah, I think it's absolutely a national championship or bust season for Clemson. Uh, Trevor Lawrence is certainly almost gone after this season, and I I know that they've got a a five-star in the wings behind him, but you don't get a Trevor Lawrence every 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 single time you you uh, sign a recruiting class. So losing Justin Ross obviously hurts, but Clemson kind of plays a two game season. I mean, the ACC being what it is right now, it's kind of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in that conference. That uh, there's there's a lot of teams you you like. You can talk yourselves into uh, you know being an eight win team, a nine win team, but Clemson is just head and shoulders above everybody else in that conference. So. It would. I think it would take a major slip up for them to lose once, and uh, uh, certainly a an all out disaster for them to lose twice. So, you know, th- their schedule is what it is. But uh, I know the committee says that, that each each season, each week is a, is a clean slate. But I, I'll never believe that that the committee isn't swayed by the human element anytime they turn on the TV and see that orange paw. So I think Clemson should go undefeated i think they'd have a good shot to get in even with one loss obviously you know we don't know how the season's played out i think they have a lot of time to figure things out work things out in their wide receiver room considering the talent they've lost you know they're going to have you know knock on wood until december to to really uh start play figuring out who they are outside of lawrence outside of etn and then really optimize you know the, the identity that's going to develop throughout the season and then at that point, you're certainly you, you're going to be lined up across from uh, Georgia and Alabama and LSU and Ohio State and have to win two games like that. So I, I think Clemson's going to be a, a work in progress for a long time, and I'm not really going to be too concerned about them because I think they're going to be a team that, that gets better as the season goes along. And, and they need to because I think, I think it's fair to say anything less than a national championship for them this season is a disappointment.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, Zach. They're a team that is completely loaded. They're a, they're a buzzsaw. They've really elevated themselves in the last several years into that upper echelon of top 2, 3 program in the country and I'd be surprised if they weren't in the mix again this year. But I wanted to take a look at Notre Dame. This is a team with Brian Kelly, the head coach at Notre Dame. He's done a great job there. They're coming off of three straight 10-plus win seasons. The expectations are high for the Irish. But with the Big Ten and Pac-12 removing non-conference games from their schedules, Notre Dame will miss out on playing Stanford, Wisconsin, and USC this year. The last two are seen as contenders in their leagues and top 25 teams. So that only leaves nine games on their schedule as of now and more than likely, they're only going to have one ranked opponent in Clemson on the schedule. So in this COVID-19 era, it seems like their independent status has kind of derailed their season before it starts. What are your thoughts on the Irish this season?
2: Yeah, uh, it's hard to really dig too deep into them and their schedule because we simply don't know what it's going to be. I think I think the ACC is going to take care of them. They're, uh, they're obviously full members in the Olympic sports, and they're they partial members as football. So uh, I think I think however the schedule ends up shaking out, I think the, the ACC is, is going to take care of them. I don't think they're going to be like a New Mexico State or, or a Liberty or a UConn and you know, left out in the cold. Uh, the, the, I don't think they're, they're certainly not going to, to hurt for teams that are willing to play them. Uh, but but I mean that, that Clemson game obviously is extremely interesting to get them at home to get them at home in November and the last time you know Clemson went that far north to somewhere that wasn't Syracuse that late in the year uh, was I really had n- no clue if you're Brian Kelly you're, you you got to hope that maybe the winds are swirling a lot maybe it's uh, maybe it's a little bit chilly maybe it, um, you can get Clemson and drag them into a game. To where they're not comfortable, and then try and win it ugly because, and then if you manage to do that, then you really can absorb a loss somewhere else uh, against opponent TBD, and find yourself in the in the field because a, a win over Clemson is going to be a feather in your cap that that no one else in college football will will really be able to to top. So I I think you know not really knowing you know everything they're going to be up against, I think. You know, assuming they're able to play that Clemson game, if if they can win that, then you know, the, really the, the sky's the limit for them. Now, if they get in, uh, judging by my it, by my comments earlier, I think they're definitely a, going to be an underdog against no matter who they play. If they're able to get in, you look at you know, two years ago they got in the field and uh, were played it close against Clemson for a half, and then were outclassed in the second half. They'd still have that problem, but if they can win that that Clemson game and take care of business elsewhere you know, they could be a playoff team.
0: Now, do you think that that's the case even without a conference championship game?
2: They're always going to be at a a slight disadvantage with the 12 game versus the 13 game. But Notre Dame's schedule is is strong year in and year out. You know, obviously this could be one of those year out uh, type seasons given that so much is up in the air. But I I think the the respect for the Notre Dame brand and the fact that they, they don't really duck any challenges i mean at the end at the end of the day they play nine ten sometimes eleven power five opponents in in any given year so i think i think they'll be fine from that from the scheduling perspective
1: i I think it's going to be an interesting year for notre dame zach so thank you for answering the information and great question brad This is going to be kind of an ACC question, Zach, but Brad and I did a lot of mock drafts, breakdown of the teams, and doing the breakdown of the Rams picks and looking at the Cam Akers selection, great running back out of Florida State, but something really jumped out at me, and so I want to get your take on it, and I want to look at it from parody may not be the right word, I just like the fact that obviously you've got the big five power conferences, ACC, Pac-12, Big 12, SEC, Big 10. I just found this very interesting. And you look at how the Miamis, the Florida State, some of these other programs that have just been national powerhouse programs for decades, Cam Akers was the only player drafted last year from Florida State. These schools had more players drafted then Florida State, and these are non-power conference schools, Appalachian State, Charlotte, Tulsa, Louisiana Tech, Fresno State, Georgia Southern, Wyoming, Florida International, Tulane, Marshall. I love that. I think that is great for football. It's great for college kids to know that they don't have to be a four-star or maybe five-star. They don't have to go to Alabama or Oregon or Clemson to make it to the NFL. Kind of tell me what your thoughts are about just can you see a Mike Norville who's now come in at Florida State, take what he did at Memphis, bring it to Florida State, bring Florida State back to prominence, so kind of speak to it in the ACC terms. But then also talk about that bigger picture of the NFL, I think, is doing a phenomenal job of evaluating talent, finding the best talent, and they don't care where it comes from. They just want kids that are hungry and ready to play football, and it doesn't have to be Big Five Power Conferences.
2: Oh yeah, I mean the, the the NFL spares no expense to to find talent wherever it is, uh, in you know that that's never going to change. As the league gets richer, they're they're going to spend any dime they can to to find any sort of advantage out there. And uh, as for the ACC struggles, I mean it, it's all about the coaching hires. I mean, you look at uh, you know the the power programs in that conference outside of Clemson, and it's you know Miami whiffed on the Mark Richt hire, uh, so that's cost him now at least two seasons. Florida State, you know Jimbo Fisher mailed in his last couple of years. They whiffed on the Willie Taggart hire. Georgia Tech uh, is in year two of a multi-year rebuild from Paul Johnson to to Jeff Collins. So the the jury's going to be out there until 2021 at at the very earliest. Uh, North Carolina is on it. you know everybody is, is there's no more optimism nationally around a single program right now than North Carolina so they're they're coming, but they're they're only in year two under Mac Brown. you know Virginia Tech is is treading water at best under Justin Fuente Louisville bottomed out under Bobby Petrino. so they're going into year two under Scott Satterfield they were they were much better than I expected it, them to be last year but they've still got a ways to go to where they can credibly challenge Clemson. And so then the rest of the conference, your Boston colleges, your Syracuse, your Pitts, your, your Dukes, Virginia's, you know, those are, those are just not programs that can be conference championship challengers year in year. Out. I mean, what's the, I believe the coastal has had seven champions in seven years. I think they, they, they completed that with Virginia winning it last year. It, do, it doesn't get any, any more, uh, parity-filled than that. It simply, you you cannot get more have more parity than seven champions in seven years. I, I just think the makeup of that conference is that it's going to be you only have so many programs that can really compete at the elite level, and that's Clemson, Florida State, and Miami, with with maybe a Virginia Tech, maybe a Louisville thrown in there. And so Florida State and Miami have not held up their end of the bargain. And I, I think Mike Norvell was the, the best hire Florida State could have made. Memphis got better every single year under him and, and obviously played in the cotton bowl this year, finally got over the UCF hump uh, last year and, and won the American. So I, I, I think, I think they made the right hire there, but you know, I, I think it's, there's never been a tougher time to, to try to rebuild that Florida state right now, because you can say, yeah, they've, they've got the FSU brand. They're in the state of Florida. Uh, so they can fall out of bed and, crash right into 15 different four stars. And yeah, that's true, but Florida's good right now. Georgia's really good right now. Clemson obviously is in their conference and at the top of the sport. Alabama's really good right now. Auburn's really good right now. You know, LSU's brand is is very strong throughout the Southeast obviously. Tennessee's on the upswing. Now, obviously if if you're a Florida State, you're not going to run scared because you're after the same type of players Tennessee, but they they traffic in the most highly highly fished waters that there is in college football, you know, within the state of Florida. So I think it it certainly can be done. And I I have high faith that Mike Norvell can get it done, but it's far from a given. And in the meantime, Clemson is, is only getting better. I mean, everybody knows how much winning they've done in the last five years and, you know, they're recruiting at a significantly higher clip than they were in, in 2016, 2017 before that. So You know, if Clemson can win national championships with you know classes that rank 10, 11, 12, you shudder to think that what they're going to be be able to do once their number one classes uh, and their their top five classes really mature, and that's going to start happening here in, in 2020 and beyond. So that's a lot of Clemson talk and a Florida State answer,
1: but you know that's the task that's ahead of Mike Norvell and company right now. I think anybody that's followed college football at all knows that the greatest potential has almost always been Florida and Texas. And that's why the Miamis and the Florida states did so well for so many years and even throw Texas, Texas A&M and all that. So outside of those two states, I mean, you cover a lot of college football. So I actually just, my brain was like, okay, wait a minute. Where are the other top two, three Areas or states where the bulk of four- and five-star kids can come out, it's obvious to think that California's one, but can you name the other two, three areas, two or three states that are outside of Florida and Texas that's always been known to produce the most? The,
2: the state of Georgia is really uh, exploding uh, right now over the past couple of years with talent. I mean, yeah, you mentioned the big three, Texas, Florida, California, And then it was kind of everybody, you know, there, there was Ohio, Louisiana put, has always put out a number of kids per capita. Uh, Ohio and Pennsylvania have, have traditionally always done well. Well, Georgia is not only separating itself from, from the other 46 states, they are really uh, starting to close the gap both on a per capita basis and just on a total numbers basis with uh, with Florida and Texas and with California uh, specifically, obviously uh, California still puts out a ton of talent, a ton of elite talent, but their their participation numbers are really dropping at a rate that's higher than than the national average. So that, that that's going to catch up with them at some point. Not to say that they're going suddenly going to become Idaho, but I think they're going on the margins. They're they're falling behind Florida, falling behind Texas, and Georgia is gaining steam rapidly. And so I, I think you know we're not far away from if we're not there uh, already to say it's not just there's a big 3 then there's Georgia then there's everybody else i think we're close to saying now it's a big 4 and Georgia can very much you know uh, go up in the paint and and grab it share rebounds with with the the, uh, the 3 7 footers in, in Texas Florida and California
0: yeah, that's, that's fascinating, Zach. When Chad asked that question, and great question, by the way, Chad, my initial thought was the big three you touched on. I always thought, okay, Florida, Texas, and California – have always kind of been those big three states. And then my mind kind of instantly went to Ohio and And you touched on Pennsylvania, I think specifically Western Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken. But to hear that Georgia is really climbing the ladder, that's definitely interesting. And I did not realize that they had become such a power in high school football recruits. But I wanted to shift to the West Coast and talk about the Pac-12 and Out in the Pac-12, Oregon is the favorite to win the North and repeat as Pac-12 champs, while many are picking USC to win the South. But I think Arizona State and Cal are both legitimate threats to Oregon and USC. Utah lost a ton of players to the NFL, but they have become a really formidable program. And then you have Washington still. They have a lot of talent and they can make some noise. So what are your thoughts on the Pac-12 conference that appears to be deeper this year?
2: Yeah, it's kind of funny. There, there's a lot of programs that you can really talk yourself into in the Pac-12, but if you were to design a system, a, a, a playoff system to play to the, Pac, to the Pac-12's weaknesses, I think you'd have a hard time coming up with a system different than the playoff. I mean, the, the playoff punishes... Parity, uh, it rewards program, conferences that can really dominate their their conferences. That That's why Ohio State's seemingly in there every year. Oklahoma's seemingly in there every year. Alabama, Clemson, you know, the, these programs that can really separate themselves from the rest of their conferences. And the, the Pac-12 just doesn't have one of those programs. So when it's not just, you know, one program and then everybody else trying to catch up, when you have three, four, five programs that really can compete for your conference title every year, then it makes it really really hard to run the table in your conference. So if you, if your champion is going to drop at least one game every year, then you got to you got to win out in your non-conference schedule. And so the Pac-12 because they don't have the the street cred that the other leagues do, well then they got to go out, they got to go east, they got to go on a neutral field, they got to go into Dallas, they got to go into Atlanta and win a game against an SEC team. And so we've seen recently, you know, Washington went to Atlanta and play, played Auburn in a virtual road game, played them really close, lost that game. Oregon just last year went to Dallas, uh, really should have beat Auburn, lost that game at the very end. And so now, you know, these conference, this conference is more or less eliminated before the season even really gets going because it, no one has ever gone 10-0 and 0 in a Pac-12 schedule since they started their championship game, whatever year, 2013 or so. I don't have that in front of me. Uh, but I, the last team to go undefeated in the Pac-12 was Oregon in 2010, that great Chip Kelly team. They went nine and zero and didn't have to play a conference championship game. So yeah, I, I, I think, I think Cal is a program that I, I, I think could really surprise people this year. Uh, you know, the, their quarterback, Chase Garbers, they played really well when he was healthy and he, he hopefully will be healthy all year. So I wouldn't be surprised at all to see you know, a program like a Cal, maybe an Arizona State, a USC, uh, win the conference this year. But, you know, obviously the wild card is that there's no uh, non-conference games, but it, it's going to be really hard to go 10-0 in a Pac-12 schedule. And so I, I think uh, the Pac-12 starts every single year behind the eight ball in trying to get into the playoff. And it, the, the system – being what it is, and the conferences, the parity being what it is,
1: just really, really works against them year after year after year. That's great information on the Pac-12, Zach. I I think some of those schools do have a shot to to maybe emerge and, and slide into that third or fourth slot in the next one or two years in the college football playoffs. And I think it'll be great for football if that happens. I want to touch base on the Big 12, and I'm going to ask a two-part question, and it really is going to involve, can Oklahoma stay elite? I know they came off this great run with the quarterbacks, Mayfield, Murray, Jalen Hurts. There's going to be a little bit of regression there this year with quarterback. Their running game is a little bit potentially suspect, and so I want to get your thoughts on Oklahoma. Then also, can Oklahoma State or Texas come out of the Big 12 this year? And I want to tie it all into earlier, about three podcasts ago, we had Ryan Aber on, who's the beat writer for the Oklahoma Suitors and the Oklahoman. And we asked him a question about where Lincoln Riley said, there may be football this fall without fans. And he's saying also that there's a chance that it could be that we wait till spring and play just due to COVID and also maybe wanting fans. So talk about Oklahoma. Talk about the Big 12, Texas and Oklahoma State, if they've got a chance. And then just kind of dovetail off that Lincoln Rally question to Ryan Aber about do you see football even college-wise happening this fall or Could it be better for college football to potentially even wait till spring?
2: I don't – I think the Oklahoma offense is almost certainly going to be better. You know, Oklahoma's offense last year was kind of broken at the – by season's end. Uh, You know, you look at the yards and the the points they put up, and it's easy to to skim past that. But, you know, they scored 28 against LSU. They scored 23 in regulation in the Big 12 championship against Baylor – the first game, they fell way behind early and had that miracle comeback in Waco. I think they scored uh, twenty nine or something like that against TCU and came really close to losing that game. Almost positive they they were under thirty uh, their last three games in regulation, which certainly uh, under Lincoln since Lincoln Riley got there, I don't believe that's ever happened, and it's certainly not if it has not since 2015, uh, his first year there when they were kind of pedestrian, and since then they've been you know year in year out the best. Offense in college football, and really last year they weren't. I mean, Jalen Hurts, great athlete, but really was not seeing the field well. I mean, by the end of the year, if you watched an Oklahoma game, you would see a couple. Uh, the the camera would catch CD Lamb being frustrated a couple times a game. They just they couldn't get Ceedee Lamb the ball. For my money, the best receiver in college football. So obviously, cd has gone. But I think Spencer Rattler, the the redshirt freshman that's going to step in there, is you know the the highest rated quarterback that that Oklahoma has signed uh, uh, in a long long time. You know, there there's certainly you expect there to be growing pains when he gets you know a, as a redshirt freshman. But this kid has the arm talent of a Kyler Murray of a Baker Mayfield, and certainly I expect him to be head well beyond Jalen Hurts as a passer, even though you know Jalen Hurts was seemingly an eighth year senior last year. So obviously. You know, you expect Oklahoma to pick up where they left off and get better offensively. Obviously, you know, they give up 63 points to LSU. He really likes Alex Grinch. Alex Grinch is really, as their defensive coordinator, he's uh, kind of ripped it down to the studs as to their defensive philosophy. He's going after, you know, bigger corners. They they've been, Traditionally, they, they got really small in the secondary under under Mike Stoops. And so they're they're getting a lot bigger there. They're they're getting guys that, that can go up and battle with the bigger receivers that you'll see in the Big Twelve. So with with their offense as good as it usually is, you know, they're they're never gonna be a, a top ten team uh, in scoring yards per play defensively. They they just need to be in, in the thirties and the forties, not in the eighties and the nineties. So if they can get there, you know, I think they might still be a year or so away. From, from getting there defensively. But uh, I think Lincoln Riley is incredibly motivated to win a national championship before he leaves Oklahoma. And so, um, I mean, they, they've got Spencer Rattler. They've got um, the, the, over 4th of July, they got the number one quarterback in the country, Caleb Williams committed to them. So I, I think it's really only a matter of time before their defense gets to where it's just, it's not an albatross hanging around their neck. As far as Texas goes, you know this is a year that they've been pointing to since Tom Herman got there to year four under the program. They've got, um, you know, obviously a, a senior quarterback in Sam Ellinger. You know, they lose Colin Johnson and Devin Duvernay, at receiver. They're going to have the the most talent they've ever had in the running back room with uh, Bijan Robinson, true freshman, Keontae Ingram as a junior, uh, Roshan Johnson as a true sophomore backup. They've got they, they've got lots of talent. At their skill position players, they they've got a veteran offensive line. Uh, I think their defense. I think their defensive line is going to be a strength this year. They're they're going to move to a four two five from a three three five, and and get more defensive line talent on the field. Get uh, more guys around the line of scrimmage. I I actually uh, I think Texas goes into Baton Rouge. I think Texas is going to beat LSU in Baton Rouge, assuming that game happens. And I think Texas is going to win the Big Twelve this season. But uh, I think it's going to be a a, a dogfight between Texas and OU uh, moving forward. And then as as to the spring question, man, I mean, whew, I think I think if that were to happen, if February March were to roll around and we could get an eight game season, hopefully with fans in the stands, I think we would all say, hey, this is this this isn't too bad, and it certainly beats the alternative. But I really understand why college athletes, you know why college coaches, college ad- administrators are are holding off on that until they have no other choice for a number of reasons. Obviously, you know, we we build the academic, the athletic year the way we do for a reason, and football is played in the fall for a reason. And so you know the, the, the spring is a is a very busy time on college campuses. So if, if if you assume that the virus has receded to a point that we can play football in the spring, fans in the stands, then, then we're probably playing every single sport on campus. So if, if I'm an AD, you know, if I'm an athletic director, athletic department employee, thinking of trying to run softball, basketball, uh, baseball, track, golf, and then football on top of that, that sounds like an absolute nightmare. And then obviously football, you know, it, it's gross to talk about because the players don't get paid, but football brings in a lot of money. So you're looking at turning six long months into nine 10 11 long months between you know when everything got down got shut down in March with no NCA tournament no baseball season and then to have an empty fall I mean you'd be talking about some athletic departments not going from going hungry to just to, to straight up being starving by the time the the uh, football a uh, spring football season actually got here so I, I think a spring season if it were to happen I think we would all Embrace it because it it meant that we missed fall. But if if I was an athletic director or coach, I would certainly fight tooth and nail against it as well.
0: Yeah, I agree with you big time on that one, Zach. I think uh, you hit it perfectly. And I do think these athletic departments would be in big trouble pushing it back. And it feels like they're going to find a way to get it done. I really believe that. Maybe that's just the optimist in me, but uh, I tend to agree with you there. But I wanted to shift gears, Zach, to the Big Ten Coach James Franklin has built Penn State really back into a big-time college football program. Sean Clifford is returning at quarterback, and Micah Parsons, the All-American linebacker, is going to be leading a loaded defense for the Nittany Lions. Ohio State visits Beaver Stadium for a whiteout October 24th in a game that could decide the East. Now, we know Ohio State is a powerhouse, but do you see Penn State possibly making its first college football playoff
2: yeah i mean I, i've spent a lot of time talking here about uh ohio state ohio state clemson alabama georgia lsu being head and shoulders of everybody else but i um, i want to uh, throw a flag on myself because penn state has absolutely been in that group that is just oh so close to to joining that elite uh you know the, you you they are very much where LSU was at this point last year. I have almost all the pieces, but not been not quite able to put it together. I think they're in that group with, with a Notre Dame, with an Oklahoma, with an Oregon, they have just almost all the, all the pieces, but again, haven't been able to put it together. And you know, you look at 2016, Oh, uh, Ohio state went to Tappy Valley, Penn state beat them. They went on to win the big 10, and got left out of the playoff for the Ohio State team that they beat. 2017, they go on the road to, to the horseshoe, get up 21-3, and then lose 39-38. 2018, Penn State goes there, gets, gets a builds up a lead, and then loses it at the very end to, to Ohio State in Happy Valley. Last year, were, there was a separation there, and, uh, and Ohio State was, won that game pretty easily. But I think this could very well be James Franklin's best team, that he's had there. Micah Parsons is right there with Derek Stingley, I believe, as the best pound for pound football player. In fact, I think they they've talked about playing him on more than one side of the ball. I think you know I, I wrote earlier this year about the, that he might return kicks for them, in, in addition to playing linebacker. And you know I wouldn't really be surprised at all to see him uh, take some snaps on offense before it's all said and done. Sean Clifford at quarterback is uh, you know a lot to like. Jordy Brown at running back. You know nobody is Saquon Barkley, but between between him and Noah Kane, they've they've got a great one-two punch there at running back. They lost Ricky Ronnie, their offensive coordinator, went to be the the head coach at Old Dominion, and then they hired Kirk Soraka away from Penn State, Penn State uh, away from Minnesota. Excuse me, Minnesota. You know, handed Penn State its first loss last year, last November, and so uh, uh, James Franklin couldn't beat Caraka, so he hired so he hired him. I would not be surprised at all to see Penn State in the college football playoff. They've just they've got to get over that Ohio State hump. Uh, you know, even when they beat him in 2016, they didn't beat him to the promised land of the playoff. But they've been just so close. So Ohio State obviously is is going to be extremely good this year. But they've been so close that you you're absolutely right. I think to put them, you know, to to mention them as one of the few college football playoff dark horses that we have.
1: Okay, Zach, that was great information on Penn State. James Franklin coming from Vanderbilt, building that program up. Uh, It has been amazing having you on. This is the final question for us in this podcast. And again, we thank you so much for your time. And it's going to be kind of a two-parter. I want to start off by staying in the Big Ten and ask a question about, is Jim Harbaugh on the hot seat? Ryan Day came in, basically didn't miss a beat with a loaded program, taking over for Urban Meyer. Brad's point, James Franklin's building up Penn State. So I want to get your thoughts on that. But then also this bigger picture, because this is college football. This is what our PGF Nation listeners want. Looking at, you talked about Oklahoma, a year or two away, rebuilding that defense. Ryan Aber said that exact same thing. So you really nailed that. Talked about Caleb Williams. Brad asked the question about Pac-12. I can see one of those schools emerging, getting into the college football playoffs. The first year that the CFP came on board, Ohio State won in 2014. The last five years has been SEC or ACC. It's only Clemson out of the ACC. I get that. But it's only been those two conferences. And who do you see, even if it's this year? Because we, you mentioned, even though they've reloaded, Alabama, LSU, down a little bit. Clemson may have to run the table to get in. Who is the one or two dark horses? Maybe not if it's this year, but could be this year. But then certainly next year that can come in and disrupt that juggernaut with the ACC and the SEC winning year after year after year. And then again, please touch on Jim Harbaugh.
2: I'll, I'll take the the second question first, and I think the 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 playoff has really uh, shined a light on how much stars do matter and how important recruiting is because you know you look at a program like Wisconsin, you know, that's a program that can run the table in the Big 10 West. A program like an Iowa, you know, they they put together a 12 and 0 season. Well, this day and age, they they got to go out and they got to win a Big 10 championship game. So you, you got to beat an Ohio State or a Penn State in the Big 10 championship. Then you got to go out and beat an Alabama, Georgia, and LSU and Oklahoma in the semifinal, and then you got to go out and beat one of those programs again at Clemson in the championship game. So uh, obviously the, the conference championship game is, is not part of the playoff, but you know, if you're a true dark horse program, you got to win two, three games against absolute elite talent. Now, anything can happen in, in one 60-minute game of football, but not anything can happen in, in two or three games. So I think the it's become just that much more difficult than it was maybe – Fifteen years ago, when not everybody had a conference championship game for a true dark horse program to win it, just because the, there's just so much more barbed wire you got to crawl through to to get there. That's I think that's largely the reason why it's going to be eight teams sooner than later to to let everybody in the field. And so we'll see how the dynamic plays out there. But uh, I, I I think you know once we go to eight teams, you'll you'll obviously see more teams in it, but you're still going to have to beat two really good teams as opposed to just one. So uh, I I think, you know, we're at a point now where you can literally legitimately talk about a program like a Penn State, like a Texas, like an Oklahoma, like an Oregon as a national title dark horse instead of a program like, oh, like Minnesota, like NC State, a program that you might have thought of as a dark horse, you know, 20, 25 years ago. And then in regards to Michigan, I think, you know, I, I, you. Some coaches become the a victim of their own success, but you know, my take on Harbaugh is he's become a beneficiary of his own failure. Uh, I think really something in the the soul of the Michigan program died in 2018 when Michigan went to the horseshoe, ranked number four, a gentle favorite to to beat Ohio State, and then they got a. Really embarrassed, 62-39. I think something died that day in Michigan. I think it was the idea that they can really compete with Ohio State and run with the the absolute thoroughbred horses of this sport. And then you know they they were turned around and, and picked to uh, to win the Big Ten going into last season. Uh, underperformed really throughout the entire season, and then were, were really embarrassed again on their home on their home field losing uh, 56-27, to and I mean, Ohio State has just run right past them two years in a row. You go back to that 2016 game, uh, Michigan was right there. They were a couple inches short, Uh, wasn't able to get it done. I think um, something started dying there, but I think the 2018 game, I think really, whether they admit it or not, I think that really closed the door on the idea that Michigan is a peer program with Ohio State. I think Michigan, you know, losing, what is it, 15 out of 16 now, I think Michigan has kind of resigned themselves to the fact that losing to Ohio State is kind of the, a, a right of fall for them at this point. It's part of the identity of Michigan football. Yeah, we, we play Ohio State or we play Notre Dame every year. We might win or lose. We play Michigan State every year. We usually beat them. Sometimes we lose. We play Penn State every year. We might beat him, we, we might not. We play Ohio State every year. Yeah, we lose to those guys. And then we go to a Florida bowl game and we watch the playoff on TV. I, I, I just think that's the Michigan DNA at this point. And so if you're comfortable with that, well, then who are you going to get better than Jim Harbaugh? You know, he's an alum. He, he represents the program with class. Obviously, you know, he, he liked to pick fights when he first got there. He's kind of toned that down you know, he puts a large emphasis on, on academics, you know, as every co- coach should, you know, he really does. He really uh, believes in the the education mission of, of the head coach at the Michigan program. You know, he, he takes them on field trips every spring. And so he, he's not a, pro- a guy that's go- really going to embarrass the program off the field or on the field, other than the fact that he loses to Ohio state every year, but he's going to turn in nine, 10 wins every year. It's really tough to throw that away willingly and roll the dice, knowing you might get a Rich Rod, you might get a Brady Hoke, and find yourself, you know, that much further behind Ohio State to let go of an alum that represents your program with class and wins nine ten a year. I think that's that job really is Harbaugh's until he no longer
0: wants it. I think that you absolutely crushed that question, Zach. I think that's going to be a tough pill for Michigan fans to swallow, but I think you're exactly right. I just think that uh, they kind of are who they are at this point. They're a really good program, but they're just not an elite program, and if they can't get over the Ohio State Mountain, they never will be, unfortunately. But we have touched a ton of different conferences. We really hit it coast-to-coast. A lot of great information here, and we cannot thank you enough, Zach, for your time. Just a ton of killer content on all things college football, so be sure to check out Zach Barnett's work. He's a college football writer for Football Scoop and NBC's College Football Talk. That's footballscoop.com. Lots of great stuff that he's putting out. We thank you again for coming on, Zach. That is going to do it for today's episode, and we will catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to the Pint Glass Football Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at PGF Podcast.